Bienvenidos a La Raza Chronicles. Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza. On tonight's program, we bring you noticias, arte, y cultura. We start the show off with a, a political roundup of America Latina brought to us by Héctor Perla. We then go to El Salvador, where we hear a segment about the fight for accountability and justice for those who have been disappeared. We'll go to the Amazon, where we'll hear from Amazon Watch around campaigns to fight back against oil companies that are drilling in some of the most biodiverse regions in the world. And last but definitely not least, we will bring you an interview with, with local favorite cumbia band, Pasto Seco. All this and much more. Stay tuned. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is Hector Perla. He's a senior research fellow at the Council of Hemispheric Affairs, and also he's been researching the important issue of the soft coups in Latin America that are overthrowing the 21st century left governments. Welcome again, Hector Perla, to La Raza Chronicles. Gracias, Nina. It's always always a pleasure to be here with you and be back on KPFA. Well, we're very happy that you're here because we've been off the air for a while and not been able to cover many of these very important events that have been happening, which is the soft coups. And could we begin by defining what is a soft coup and where in Latin America have these soft coups been taking place? So a soft coup is pretty much in object in terms of objectives it's the same thing as a traditional coup. Uh people are familiar with the more traditional notion of a coup where the military comes in and kicks out a government uh a civilian government. In the case of soft coups the objective is still the same to oust a democratically elected government but to do it the what's different is the tactics that it relies on. It no longer relies on military force but rather acts through soft power or through institutions and relies on the power that politicians, judges, elected officials, police officers, including some military, but usually they take a backseat, uh, have in order to kind of cover up what their really their real intention is to oust this democratically elected government. And they use the facade of these institutions to to get rid of a person that they don't like because it's contrary to their particular interests. So, for example, talk to us about some of these soft coups. Right. So the most recent case is in 2016, the, the case of Dilma Rousseff of the Workers' Party of Brazil. There was a quote-unquote impeachment process that was put against her. And from a legal standpoint, all the, the majority of legal scholars in Brazil agreed that she had not committed the a crime of a magnitude that would justify an impeachment proceeding against her. But it was politicized by members of the Congress, both the House of Representatives or the equivalent of that in Brazil, and later the Senate, and members of the same coalition that she was a part of, that her vice president was actually a part of, they all turned against her in an effort to cover up their own corruption. It's a good number of Brazilian legislators that are accused of corruption and the Rousseff government was uh, uncovering these corruption scandals. And so to stop that, they voted to impeach her to stop it. And in effect, 
the guy who became her her vice president, who became now the president of Brazil, gets immunity from prosecution for previous corruption or any kinds of crimes now that he's the president. So it was a way to cover up all their impunity and their corruption and at the same time get rid of the Workers' Party. So why do you feel that that was a soft coup rather than something that was organic inside Brazilian society? Well, so what I'm seeing is a trend, right, in terms of Latin America. What I see is an evolution in kind of the way in which the right wing and U.S. foreign policy to a large degree is reacting towards the democratic demands, the left demands, the demands for social justice in Latin America. And so we can take, for instance, starting in about 1980, right? Latin America went through a transition to democracy, representative democracy, bourgeois democracy, but electoral democracy. And since then, there's been very few returns to dictatorship. But at the same time, we've had an increase during that same time period of presidents in Latin America who are ousted from office before their term is up. Can you give us some examples of those? So the the interesting one and probably the one that's that kind of is the the breaking point is the first impeachment that takes place in Latin America in these democratic systems is actually in Brazil as well. In that case it was the Fernando Color de Melo administration. He was ousted for corruption, but that one was a traditional impeachment process that went through normally. It was not a politicized process. What we start getting later on are these attempts at coups or actual hard coups, the traditional coups against John Bertrand Aristide in, in Haiti twice against Hugo Chavez in 2002 with attempts to begin to cover it up. And then the, the real breaking point is in 2009 in Honduras, where the Zelaya administration is ousted and he's taken out of the country by the military. But it's with the collusion of both the Senate, the legislative branch of government and the Supreme Court, which all said they they sided against the president. So that one was the first that begins to give legal cover and starts pushing the military back. And how do you think that happened? Well, I think what what's happening is an evolution in terms of U.S. policy and the right wing's shifting tactics in Latin America. Well, how did U.S. policy, for example, play a role in that Honduran? Well, in the Honduran case, it was clear that the uh, Obama administration, led by Hillary Clinton at the time uh, in the State Department, in essence, whitewashed that coup and basically enabled that coup to stand. Uh, there was universal condemnation with the exception of the United States for that coup. And had the U.S. put pressure on the coup government, you would have seen a rollback and a return to, of Celaya back into the presidency. But what ended up happening is she basically, as she said in her book, she rendered the point of Celaya moot by shifting to elections. And so what we're seeing in terms of the soft coups now is to try to render these these individuals moot, right? This question of individuals moot by going through quasi-legal channels. And so they use these institutions, this notion this that's in the Constitution of impeachment, but they politicize it and they use it in a way that manipulates the intent, the spirit of the law. 
and gives a facade, gives the right wing a facade, a cover, a political cover to allow them to get what they ultimately want, which is a return to oligarchy, a, a return to neoliberalism, a ne return to free trade policies. Is that what happened in recently in Argentina? No, in Argentina, there was an electoral loss. But in, in Paraguay, we saw this. We saw in Paraguay, in Fernando Lugo, the president was impeached in 2012. And that was the case where this was really firmly developed. Like this was the, the initial soft coup against Fernando Lugo, where he was impeached or the, the first vote in the House and two days later in the Senate. And he had two days to defend himself, uh, to prepare a legal defense. And in two days, what kind of legal defense can any anyone mount? And so he was out in within a matter of days as the president. And the Supreme Court validated that as well. Where else has this happened? We just saw that happen now in Brazil in 2016. And we're seeing elements of this strategy happening in different uh, countries. So the case that I'm most familiar with and I've been kind of worried about is the case in El Salvador, where the Farabundo Martí National Liberation Front, the FMLN government, has been ruling now, this is their second term in office, but we have a, a Congress, a national assembly that is predominated by the right wing and the Supreme Court, which is strongly dominated by the right wing as well. And so we've been seeing that they're using the Supreme Court rulings in order to roll back some of the progressive reforms that the government has implementing and beginning a process of destabilization against the government, both in terms of trying to bankrupt their finances, but also through the media and through civil society campaigns to try to undermine the popularity of the government and lay the foundation for a, a soft coup as well. My final question is, what is the U.S. role in this? Is there some official group or body or part of our government that's promoting this? So I'm not sure if I can pinpoint a particular group, but what we've seen from, for instance, the Obama administration is Secretary of State Kerry lauding the Temer government or applauding the Temer government. So in essence, whitewashing this coup or accepting this coup as something legitimate or against the government of Dilma Rousseff. We also see people like Marco Rubio in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee also making statements denouncing different left-wing figures, for instance, again, in the case of El Salvador, pointing to individual congressmen in El Salvador and trying to use defamatory language to try to make an excuse for cutting aid to El Salvador. So we see those kinds of things on different on both sides of the political spectrum in the United States in trying to undermine these these leftist governments. Well, thank you so much, Hector Perla. This is really important news for us. And I'd like to set up a mechanism where you report to us on a regular basis your observations about this soft coup process in Latin America and the many observations you're going to have from your particular spot there in Washington, D.C. So we hope to hear from you soon again. Well, thank you, Nina. I really appreciate it. And as always, a pleasure to be here. De nada. Un placer. <laughs> Members of the local Salvadoran community are stepping up efforts to learn the truth about relatives disappeared during the nation's civil war. Reporter Lisak Shalit spoke to organizers of a new campaign to find the missing. 
Here in San Francisco's Mission District, some 40 Salvadorans are watching a slideshow of smiling parents and babies. The photos are happy, but the music that accompanies them is not. Mi unicornio azul ayer se me perdió The song is Unicornio Azul by Silvio Rodriguez. It's just such a very sad and haunting song about someone trying to find something that's disappeared. That's Alexandra Aquino Fike, the organizer of today's event. The author of the lyrics, Salvadoran revolutionary Roque Dalton, disappeared in El Salvador in 1975. A few years later, so did Alexandra's father. I'm the daughter of a disappeared uh, from the Salvadoran Civil War. My father's name was Mauricio Aquino Chacon, and he was disappeared from our home, uh, forcibly taken on the evening of April 15, 1981. That night, the army surrounded the house. Aquino, an industrial engineer who was just 28, was hauled off in his bathrobe and never seen again. I was only a baby, um, approximately 20 months old. Uh, I have no memories of my father, but it's been a huge trauma in my life, always wondering what happened to him, when did he die exactly, where are his remains. We don't have a burial site, we don't have a grave, a tombstone to go to every year. Uh, we don't even know the exact date he died. In a country roughly the size of California's Kern County, the war claimed 75,000 lives. An estimated 10,000 people went missing, most at the hands of the military. Has anyone seen my husband? asked this song by Ruben Blades. He left work the night before last, and he hasn't come home yet. Many Salvadorans living in the U.S. have disappeared relatives. How many? Nobody knows. Aquino Fike would like to find out. Now in her 30s and living in the East Bay, she's the driving force behind a campaign card, Our Parents' Bones, Los Huesos de Nuestros Padres. It came to her in a dream. One night I had a dream that I somehow found my father's body. I was in a beach it's called Sunsal in El Salvador. And it was a really blue, uh, the tones of the, the beach were just blue and blue. And then suddenly the moonlight was streaming down on me. And um, I looked down and, and I was holding a body in my hand. So I just immediately knew in my heart that I had my, the body of my father. And I started yelling out, Mom, I found him, I found him, I, I have him, I have him. And I told my mother, his body's out there, his remains are out there. And I want to bury him, I want to find him, and I want to finally bury him. It just sparked a fire. She said, you're right, before we die, at least let's make this effort. The San Francisco meeting took place in August. It's one of four community gatherings that Our Parents' Bones has led around the country. We're looking for a way to heal, and the only way for us to heal is to actually understand what happened to them and where are their remains. And because U.S. support to the Salvadoran military played such a large role in the war, Aquino Fike believes that the keys to this information can be found in Washington, D.C. Many people um, from both sides have tried to argue, oh, just let this go, the records are probably destroyed. But it, it, it is our belief that um, the records remain, and maybe some have been destroyed, but not all. Especially on the U.S. side, we believe that there's probably some interesting information available. 
So last April, Children of Salvador's Disappeared went to Congress. It was a very moving experience for those children. Of, there were three of us there. We honestly expected that no one would open the door, no one would care. Instead, they were received by the House Central America Caucus and the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission. They asked legislators for a letter to President Obama, calling upon him to declassify U.S. military and intelligence records. When I saw that 26 Congress uh, men and women had signed, I almost cried in my office. The Salvadoran Ombudsman for Human Rights, David Morales, also attended the briefings. He believes this information exists because the military is one of the institutions that most documents its workings, in El Salvador and everywhere else. Porque las instituciones militares son las instituciones más documentadas en todos en su actividad en cualquier país del mundo. For Aquino Fike, that's a hope to build on. Uh, we know that there won't be, you know, one flaming paper that says, oh, here's where your father buried. But we know that they'll start to put a bigger picture together, a more clear picture of where there might be mass graves. Along with human rights groups in El Salvador, Our Parents Bones is calling for the creation of a national commission on disappearances there. Aquino Fike is encouraged by the fact that current Salvadoran president, Salvador Sanchez Seren, was once a revolutionary leader. Across Latin America, new steps are underway to end impunity for the disappearances of the 1970s and 80s. Washington recently released documents on Argentina's dirty war, and last August, 28 ex-military men there were sentenced to life. Guatemalans have also made great strides, including the arrest of a former president for crimes against humanity. Guatemala is a, is a very interesting model for El Salvador right now. They, the civil society there, if they can somehow get the strength and organize themselves to demand human rights, justice, and are successful, we need to follow that example, and it gives us much hope. Back at the San Francisco meeting, people recount the stories of their missing. Many have never spoken about this outside their families. Even inside families, silence has reigned. So we have a historical legacy of silence. That's Joana Beltran Giron, a student at UC Santa Cruz. She came to the meeting with her father. I knew that one of my dad's uh, uncle was killed and that he was present while my, my uncle was killed. But I didn't know until now that one of my other uncles, my dad's, was disappeared. He never, ever, ever, ever mentioned about an uncle that was disappeared. Neither has her grandmother. And we've asked her and she's like, I don't know what's the word even in Spanish, but she's like, una cajita. And she wouldn't, like, she wouldn't ever talk about these things, ever with nobody. One woman who sought out our parents' bones didn't know her mother was disappeared until she was a teenager. Aquino Fike explains. Her family had kind of hid, hidden that truth because they just were so traumatized and they didn't, I think, probably didn't want to accept it themselves that they told her, no, your mother, is, she's, she moved to the U.S. But as the years recede, a younger generation of Salvadoran Americans is pressing their families to search for the truth. A recent UC Berkeley graduate whose aunt disappeared told the meeting how she turned to the school's Human Rights Center. They connected her to groups in El Salvador that search for the missing. But to her frustration, her mother hasn't followed up. But while the traumas linger, 
life marches on. The children of the disappeared become the parents they never had. There's not a day that goes by when I don't think about my father in some way, you know, even though um, I don't have a memory of him. But now that I'm a mother, I have a two-year-old son, I really think about my father because my son is now at this, around the same age that I was when my father was taken, and he's a complete joy, and there's nothing like hearing the word mama from my son, and I probably was saying papa. For Aquino Fike, honoring his memory is her greatest motivation. I do wonder, you know, did I make him proud? In San Francisco, I'm Lizak Shalit for La Raza Chronicles on KPFA Radio. The latest community meeting of Our Parents' Bones was held this week in Houston, Texas. The group will be traveling to El Salvador later this year to meet with human rights defense groups and government officials there. For more information on Our Parents' Bones, see their website, www.ourparentsbones.org, or their Facebook page. This report was brought to us by Lisak Shalat.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and today we have in the studio with us Adam Zuckerman, who's working on a big, important campaign at Amazon Watch. Thank you so much for having me, Julieta. So let's just take a step back, um, Adam, and I want you to just paint a picture for folks. A lot of times when people think about the Amazon, when they think about just in general, when they think about the destruction that's happening on a worldwide scale, they don't think about the people involved. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Amazon Watch and its mission overall and some of the work that you all are doing on different levels to try to really address some of the destruction that's happening. Definitely, and th- thanks for having me today. So Amazon Watch was formed 20 years ago with the mission of supporting indigenous peoples and protecting the Amazon rainforest. And we see those as incredibly interlinked in the sense that indigenous peoples make up 4% of the world's population, but their territory holds 80% of the world's biodiversity. So by supporting indigenous peoples, you're also protecting the world's largest carbon sink. Um, You're protecting an area that is the world's most biodiverse rainforest. So we do see working with indigenous peoples and supporting indigenous rights as inherently important, but we also see it as something that, that helps other goals of protecting the rainforest, protecting our environment here. So, Adam, you all have done a lot of work on the ground, and you've also made a lot of connections to the work that's been ongoing in, whether it's Ecuador primarily or maybe Peru. So why don't you tell us about some of the victories and where things are at? Because I think that it can feel pretty daunting to push back against such an intense, powerful force such as these oil companies. Sure. So we've we've been lucky to have great partnerships with indigenous partners in the Western Amazon. Um, really for the last 20 years. And it's really been them who, who've been leading these fights. In southern Ecuador, for example, indigenous communities have kept out oil companies successfully for the last 25 years. There was the case of the Quichua of Sardayaku, a community that, after the Ecuadorian government facilitated the entry of an Argentinian oil company into their territory and planted dynamite in their territory, the community then resisted and they ended up taking that case from their local courts to national courts to the International Court of Human Rights and won this landmark judgment that essentially says that um, governments and, and corporations have to first get the consent of indigenous peoples before operating their territory. Essentially set this international precedent. The government had to apologize publicly to the community. Um, they had to make a payment over a million dollars. And they're also supposed to take the dynamite out of their territory, which unfortunately they haven't done yet. So this sort of set this precedent, and while there aren't many companies or or governments that are following it at this point, I think it's it's an important first step in the right direction. What's been a little more difficult recently is that in the past, we've been dealing with multinationals that have been based in North America. So we go to their shareholder meetings, we engage with them through the media, and while we've had these successes of helping to kick oil companies out of of indigenous territory, including um, Talisman and ConocoPhillips, there have then been other companies that have moved in. So right now in Ecuador, you're seeing a lot of Chinese oil companies. And that's because of the billions of dollars of debt that, that uh, Ecuador owes China right now. So essentially, they've been loans that have been backed with billions of dollars of oil. And instead of paying back China in cash, Ecuador is, is paying them back in oil, which is leading to the expansion of the oil frontier in the Amazon rainforest. So we've been seeing that it's been more difficult to have leverage points around the supply side. We we thought a little bit and thought what is what what is our role in this? Where where is the oil coming? And we realized that about 60% of oil from the Amazon rainforest is coming to California is being processed here. So that's that's what this campaign is based on. 
So Adam, before we get into the campaign, why don't you talk about previous campaigns and work that you mentioned some of the tactics you all have used at Amazon Watch in terms of going to shareholder meetings and doing a lot of media work. Talk to us about, you know, this has been a long, long fight. So talk to us a little bit about Amazon Watch's work here in the U.S. Sure. The most the most famous one is the Chevron case. We, we started working with affected peoples in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon about 15 years ago. That was after they had already been fighting Chevron for 10 years to, to try to get justice. The, the background is that Texaco, which is now owned by Chevron, started operating in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon in 1964. And during those two and a half decades that they were there, they deliberately dumped 18 billion gallons of toxic wastewater directly into rivers and streams in the Ecuadorian Amazon. It would have cost them $3 more per barrel of oil to line these pits, but instead they just contaminated rivers and streams and people's drinking water. So there are 30,000 affected peoples in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon, indigenous peoples and campesinos who have been impacted by this deliberate contamination of their water source. And so they, in 1993, launched a case against Texaco. It was then in the United States. It was filed in New York. And Texaco essentially got it dismissed there and got it moved to Ecuador because at the time, Ecuador was a petrostate and they thought that they, they could win the case that way through, through influence. Fortunately for us, they weren't able to. And about five years ago, they ended up, they ended up losing a $9.5 billion judgment that was then upheld at the Ecuadorian Supreme Court. But instead of paying, Chevron has been going after indigenous peoples, going after their lawyers, going after activist groups. So actually, I'm proud to say that Chevron has tried to sue me personally, that they used a blog that I wrote in a defamation case that was part of a subpoena to get Amazon Watch's records for the last 12 years or something like that. So it wasn't really that there was any smoking gun in our emails. We were doing everything that was completely legal. Um, and that's actually what the, what the judge said. And I went to the, to the hearing in San Francisco and they were saying, oh, they are you know, doing shareholder advocacy. They're, they're getting petitions. And the, judge, the judge's response to that, well, that's their First Amendment right. We've been going to the Chevron shareholder meetings for the last, the last several years um, and have been helping to coordinate a coalition of different groups from all over the world who have been impacted by Chevron's practices. In, in past years, you've seen groups from Nigeria, from, from Kazakhstan, from Angola, from Alaska, there are also communities in Iraq and, and all over the world who have been, I think recently really, especially since the fire in 2012 at the refinery in Richmond, you're seeing a huge, a huge presence. At one point, there were two or 3,000 people uh, who went to a protest outside of the, out of the Richmond refinery. That's the voice of Adam Zuckerman. He's with Amazon Watch, and we're talking about the work that they've done, and actually it's brought them to their work today. So you've just launched a campaign that's really geared towards folks here in the U.S. who are concerned, who care, that realize that they're actually, they have an impact on what's happening in the Amazon. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? We do. Thank you. So essentially, 60% of the oil exports from the Amazon rainforest are being processed right here in California, both in refineries here in the Bay Area and in refineries in the LA area. So with, with all that demand for, for Amazon crude, we're, we're essentially giving an impetus for the expansion of the oil frontier in the Amazon rainforest. Between, between Peru and Ecuador right now, there are about 50 different oil blocks that are, that are proposed that the governments are trying to auction off to different oil companies to the highest bidder. 
so our role in that is to say that if you are able to to auction off those blocks, you're not going to have anywhere to sell your oil. So we're trying to impact that demand and impact the decision-making of, of companies that are thinking about drilling there. So tell us about what that looks like, because there are a lot of people that are thinking, you know, I live in Richmond. We have a lot of listeners in Vallejo, Richmond, et cetera, who are facing the consequences of refineries here. They understand the impact firsthand because they're just recently, there was a a day where the ferry stopped running because there was oil in the water, et cetera. So people are seeing the impacts here. So they know firsthand what it's like. Along with limiting their driving, what can they do? Definitely. So I think, yeah, fuel efficiency, um, changing the way we live is is the most important thing. Scientists are saying that we have to keep 80% of fossil fuels in the ground. So so our take is that we should start with places like the Amazon rainforest, places that are crucial for the survival of the planet in terms of being a carbon sink, places that have the world's greatest biodiversity, and places that have indigenous peoples who could be wiped out by operations there. Right now in the Ecuadorian Amazon, about three or four weeks ago, the government produced its first barrel of oil from Yasuni ITT, which is not only the most biodiverse place on the planet, but is also the last home of Ecuador's communities living in voluntary isolation, which are commonly called uncontacted communities. And if if there is contact, forcible contact with these groups, statistically about half of the pop- their population is entirely wiped out. Sort of a repeat of what we've seen through colonization in, in North America and other parts of Latin America. And these are sort of the last groups that have seen what's happened with their other indigenous brothers and sisters and said, we don't want any kind of contact. We don't want any part of that world. You really laid out some of the consequences and the urgency. So so people really can take responsibility of their impact in terms of using fossil fuels. Are there ways that they can also hold accountable those companies that are actually going forward and drilling in these biodiverse places? Definitely. So because there, there's so much oil from the Amazon being processed in California, it is in, in practical terms, it means that every single vehicle fleet that buys bulk diesel in the state is using fuel that's at least partly derived from Amazon crude. So it's literally impossible to trace it down to individual gas stations, but it is possible to trace it to individual refineries and from there to terminals where, where these companies, let's say, I'll say that the largest companies in the country right now are, are buying their fuel from. We're, we're going to have an activist toolkit on our website. And you can go there and you can engage with your university. You can engage with your city and you can engage with some of these companies. So we'll, we'll also have a petition there. But we'd, we'd love for people to get more deeply involved because as a small nonprofit, we can't, we can't run campaigns. We can't engage with, with every single group in the state or in the country that's using Amazon Crude. But we'd love to support you in your efforts. So there are probably people listening here that are parents or that are educators and really are working with people that it can be very overwhelming and super upsetting to find out about this destruction. And it can also leave you with a sense of feeling hopeless. So what would you say for our educators? First of all, I know that Amazon watches a lot of tools to break things down and share information um, with a whole big range of people. Um, so first off, what can people actually use to talk about this really difficult issue? And then second, can you tell us a little bit about what its approach for working with young people that can find this information just pretty overwhelming because it can, it can cause a sense of despair? It, it definitely can. So we do have a curriculum for young people on our, on our website, an Amazon Watch curriculum for grades one through eight. And some, some education grad students created that for us that we're extremely grateful for. And it's sort of while meeting all core all core curriculums, it also teaches about the Amazon rainforest, about indigenous peoples, 
and about our interconnectedness with them. So I think feel free to check out our website. We have a two-minute viral animation that was made by Pulitzer Prize-winning animator Mark Fiore, and it speaks about this entire issue. And you can also learn about a variety of other issues there. And what would you say for the people listening that feel like, what can we really do? These companies are so big and we're so small. How would you respond to that? I would say that we're already having some success engaging with some of these companies. Since, since the campaign just started, it's been without a ton of public pressure at this point. So I'd say that if people who are supporting all these companies are able to let them know that they're not going to continue to shop there unless they change their practices, then, then I think that could be really powerful. Because these companies, I think, I think some of them at least, want to do the right thing. Nobody wants to deliberately source oil from the Amazon. And to be, to be completely fair, none of them knew about this really until a few weeks before we launched the campaign. So it's not that they're deliberately trying to source oil from the Amazon, but rather that they're doing it unless they make a commitment not to. So, Adam, thank you for coming by and giving us information about this really urgent campaign. People can find out more on your website. As you mentioned, Amazon Watch does a lot with very little. So how can people directly support Amazon Watch? Um, we're a nonprofit that's completely completely funded by individual donations and, and by foundations. So feel free to go support us on our website, amazonwatch.org. You can go to amazonwatch.org and check that out. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Julieta. Está la historia del amigo de un amigo, un hombre sabio que le gusta parrandear, un caballero con todita la muchacha. Si no cumbiaba lo encontrabas en el lab Un cierto sane regresando del Dolores El gran maestro se puso a filosofar Metiendo turbo por misión y 24 En sus teorías él se puso a meditar Hace la corta así Ay, ay Hace la corta así Ay, ay Si no te gusta te bajas Te vamos a dejar al bar Hacete famoso champion no vamos a bajonear Esta es la historia del amigo de un amigo Un hombre sabio que le gusta parrandear Un caballero con toditas las muchachas Si no cumbiaba lo encontrabas en el lab un cierto sande regresando del Dolores El gran maestro se puso a filosofar Metiendo turba por misión y 24 En sus teorías él se puso a meditar Y se la corta así Ay, ay se la corta así Ay, Si no te gusta te bajas Te vamos a dejar al bar Hacete famoso champion No vamos a bajonear Hace la corta así, ay, ay. Hace la corta así, ay, ay. Si no te gusta, te bajas. Te vamos a dejar al bar. Hacete famoso champion. No vamos a bajonear.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza, and we have local Bay Area band, Pasto Seco Band, joining us on the show today. Ahorita tenemos una banda de la Bahía, se llama Pasto Seco Band, acá en nuestro show. Welcome, guys. Gracias. Gracias. Hola, muchas gracias. Very thank you. ¿Qué sucede? <laughs> pues mucho gusto tenerlos acá en el show. So first, introduce yourselves and tell us who's in the band and what instruments you guys each play. Primero que nada, yo soy Tito Capitán y soy la persona que tratamos de organizar un poco esta banda. Yo canto un poco y toco el acordeón. También tenemos a mi lado a... Uh, my name is Tomás and I play the guitar. My friend Tito here, Tito Capitan, plays the accordion. And to my right over here is Cesar. Hola a todos, mi nombre es Cesar. Toco el güiro, también oficio de roadie para nuestro baterista. Y estoy muy contento de estar acá. Hi guys, my name is Ivan. Uh, I'm the clarinet, uh, a flute player and uh, singer. And yes, we are very happy and excited to be here and share our music with you all. Yeah, we're, we're excited to have you guys. So how did you start playing music together? Are you all originally from the Bay Area? Bueno, la mayoría de nosotros somos de Sudamérica y Centroamérica. Hay gente de Argentina, Cuba, Chile, México. Eh, y nos conocimos acá en Berkeley, básicamente, tocando en fiesta, tocando en la calle. Y sin querer, queriendo, como dijo el chavo, nos hemos convertido en una banda. ¿O no, Tomasito? Yeah, so what my friend Tito was trying to say is that we're mostly foreigners over here. I'm an immigrant, he's an immigrant. Uh, we've been here for a couple of years in California. We are students, but a lot of people in the band are not, and they have lived in the Bay Area for longer, and they, they work in the city and in Oakland and stuff. And we bring together all sides of Latin America, pretty much. Um, uh, we started playing music in the street and in parties, and uh, slowly started getting professionalized a little bit more, and then look at us now, we're in the radio. One thing I've, I've seen on your website and on your Facebook, you describe your music as street cumbia. How do you describe your music? Oh, uh, well, I think the fact that we put together so many different cultures from Latin America plus American culture into it, puts together also a lot of people from different backgrounds. Since we began playing on the street as a stage, we kind of connected more with people and uh, that definitely created a community that is called Pasto Seco Band. ¿Y qué significa Pasto Seco? What do you define Pasto Seco as? Pasto Seco, bueno, Pasto Seco literalmente como dry grass, es una expresión que se usa en Chile bastante para simbolizar algo, dar a entender algo que que prende muy rápido, algo que prende muy fácil. Por ejemplo, alguien que en una fiesta no, inmediatamente se pone a bailar, se pone a pasarlo bien. Esa es una persona que se le dice que es pasto seco. Entonces nosotros tomamos este nombre, lo, lo usamos en la banda para dar a entender que la música de pasto seco band permite que la gente se entusiasme inmediatamente y empiece a bailar inmediatamente, sin la necesidad, no sé, de alguna cerveza, algún ron por ahí. <risa> Well, you know, Pasto Seco, I think the, the most direct actual translation of it would be like kindling. It's like something that lights on fire real quick with a small spark. You know, that's what we are known to do. We play in the street a lot in, in Valencia and 16th. And I can tell you, every single time that we've done it, 
there's like a huge party that happens all of a sudden. And I, I mean, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I've never seen that before. And I don't know why it happens, but it does every time. How many members are in this band? Because right now you, there's four of you here in the studio, but is, it a, is there many guys in the band? Sí, de, de hecho una de las cosas que nos caracteriza como banda es que somos más grandes que un equipo de fútbol. Somos actualmente 14 miembros. 14 members. 14 band members, all-star members <laughs> from different countries. So we try to play different instruments. Sometimes it's hard because we are super big band. Um, sometimes we don't fix on the stage. Pero definitivamente en la calle cabemos todos siempre. ¿Y hay otros instrumentos que ellos tocan también? ¿Are there other instruments that they play that are interesting? Yes, there is multiple instruments. We have a whole horn section. We have a, a tenor saxophone, alto saxophone, Cuban guy, uh, Mario, Luz Martín in the tenor saxophone. We have Jacob from the, from the Bay Area on the trumpet. Uh, we have multiple drums. We have drum sets, traditional drums, bongo, conga, tambora, uh, uh, I personally play the clarinet, Tito and the uh, accordion, and the maestre and the minor percussion. You guys mentioned you play shows on the street. Where's the most memorable place you guys have played? Bueno, we start playing at Duran and Telegraph next to UC campus, and just in the corner, we, we after the Cal matches, we start using that corner to play our music. Then we start, then we got a car and it was easier to get to go to Dolores Mi, Park. Dolores Park, principally. We started playing at Dolores Park on every Sunday. That's every where we Saturday. met Jacob. We started uh, making the, the, the band start growing up in Dolores Band with, with guys from, from San Francisco. Actually, I think we met two man members. We met them in the street. Yes, Martin, Martin, and <laughs> Jacob. We met. Martin and Jacob at Dolores Park. Dolores Park is a very good, nice spot. We love it. And from Dolores Park, we went to play at Valencia 16, next to Panchitas Pupuseria. Un saludo para Dori. Muchas gracias por permitirnos ahí tocar frente al local de las exquisitas Panchitas Pupuseria. We all can testify that. For yeah. sure. <laughs> También tocamos un par de veces en forma así, sin invitación, en el Murmur, en Oakland. Eh, yo creo que ahí también hemos tenido un par de fiestas bien, bien buenas. Sí, yo creo que esto ha sido un aspecto importante de la banda, el tocar en la calle, empezar en la calle, no por dinero, sino por pasarlo bien. Y ahí uno conoce una gran cantidad de gente de todos los backgrounds educacionales o económicos y eso le ha dado como riqueza a la banda para conocer más el Bay Area. Sí, una, una de las cosas que siempre nos proponemos eh, nosotros es tratar de seguir creciendo, tocar ojalá cada día en venues más grandes, en otras ciudades, tratar de proyectar nuestra música en diferentes medios más masivos, pero nunca perder eh, nuestro acá en la tierra, que es la calle. Por eso ustedes pueden ver que, no sé, hoy día estamos tocando un show o mañana en San Francisco, pero el día siguiente de nuevo vamos a estar en la pupusería o seguimos yendo los domingos al Dolores Park, porque es principalmente de donde nosotros nos nutrimos, de donde encontramos inspiración para nuestra música, inspiración para nuestra fiesta en la calle, esa gente que no tiene a veces para pagar una entrada para ir a un club, pero que le gusta pasarlo bien. Así que por eso nos definimos principalmente como cumbia callejera, pero definitivamente hay muchos otros estilos mezclados entre medio. Where can our listeners know about where you all are playing next? We publish a lot in our Facebook page, Pasto Seco Band on Facebook. You can also look us up on pastosecoband.com, our webpage. We definitely update a lot on social media. That's one of our number one outlets. 
And uh, we're going to have a show, a big show, first for El Día de los Muertos at Elbow Room in San Francisco in the Mission District, not very far from our beloved corner right next to the Pupuceria. It should be a big party. You know, it should be spooky and creepy, still with that Halloween feel. Bueno, también nos gustaría aprovechar este espacio de mandar un cariñoso saludo uh, to all the band members. We have uh, Pepino on the drums, Dave in bongo and tambora, Comandante Marco in the congas. Uh, we have also Uri de Argentina en los timbales, nuestro amigo también en los horns, como dijimos antes, uh, Jacob on the trumpet, Martin in the alto sax, and Mayombe from Cuba in the tenor sax. The strict session, we have Sebastián Monreal from Concepción in the electric guitar and also Elisa Durán in the bass. Un saludo para ellos. También en las voces, we have uh, Iván Rondón que está aquí con Tomasito que también toca la guitarra. Marielita, una de las caras lindas o que somos casi todos feos de la banda. Y también nuestro manager maestre César que junto a, a mí y Tito somos et, este gran equipo. So, also to compliment uh, the social media information, we are also in Instagram, and you can also follow us in Twitter. And now Pasto Seco Band is going to play for us live here in the studio. Go ahead, guys. Un, do, un, do, e, a. Que bailas al pasar, vendame tu mano, vamos a bailar, morena de misión. Que bailas al pasar, vendame tu mano, vamos a bailar. al pasar vendame tu mano vamos a bailar morena de misión que bailas al pasar vendame tu mano vamos a bailar 
just heard Pasto Seco Band from the Bay Area and once again their next shows are on November 2nd at the Elbow Room in San Francisco for Dia de los Muertos and a CD release party on December 2nd at the New Parish. Thank you to them for joining us tonight on La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas. And this is a calendar of events for the San Francisco Bay Area. For Thursday, October 20th, Quantic with special guest Nidia Gongora will be bringing their world music fusion to the mezzanine in San Francisco. 444 Jesse Street starts at 9 p.m. MezzanineSF.com For Saturday, October 22nd, join KPFA's own Nina Serrano and Avacha for their music of the world as they read their poetry along with other Bay Area poets. Don't forget to bring your congas, guidos, and maracas. This is at the Cesar Chavez branch of the Oakland Library, 3301 East 12th Street in Oakland, from 3 to 5 p.m. The Bay Area Mural Festival will be having their closing celebration Sunday, October 23rd. See over 25 artists and youth working on creating 12 fabulous murals. This event will take place at 1740 Alcatraz Avenue in Berkeley, 1 to 5 p.m. From now till November 19th, join MACLAS for their 30th annual Dia de los Muertos event, Ofrendas para las Animas, Offerings for the Souls. This exhibit features artists' ofrendas by Emilia Berumen, Anita De Lucio, Aurelio Melcor Pimentel, and more. This is at the Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts, 2868 Mission Street. For more information, go to missionculturalcenter.org. Soma Art's annual Day of the Dead exhibition is happening now to November 5th. Curated by René Yáñez and Rio Yáñez, with assistance from architect Nick Gómez. The event features work from more than 70 artists each year. This is at Soma Arts, 934 Brandon Street in San Francisco. SomaArts.org For Saturday, October 29th, there will be a beloved community healing clinic. 
a free traditional healing clinic for all community members targeted for people that are marginalized and of limited resources. The intention of the clinic is to provide a space for all individuals to learn about and experience cultural-based, natural, non-industrial forms of healing and healthcare that address both physical health conditions as well as underlying emotional, psychological factors that contribute to their health conditions. The clinic will be held at the Tessa Faranga Rec Center, 974 85th Street in Oakland, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. For more information, contact Lalis Vasquez at lalis.hcc at gmail.com. And this has been a calendar of events, Cultura y Arte for the Bay Area. If you'd like to add your event to the calendar, please email us at larasachronicles at kpfa.org. And for more information on our show, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Chronicles. Feliz noches! You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to submit any story ideas or you have segments you'd want to cover or pieces you want to submit, you can email us at lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. You can also listen to the show again or share it with your friends by finding us on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash Chronicles. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches.